turn in our Bibles this morning to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 22 to 39 this morning. I want to encourage you in a couple of ways before we begin this morning. And the first is, uh, I have observed that perhaps the person who is most excited about my preaching on any given Sunday is Siri. You know Siri, don't you? She lives, in fact, she's, she's waking up right now. Uh, Siri seems to respond to my preaching more than almost anybody else. And so I just want to encourage you, if you use your cell phone to follow along in the Bible, I'm glad that you do that. I'm glad that you have the scriptures in front of you. But if you could just do everyone a kindness, not least of all, the preacher a kindness, and turn your volume all the way down, Siri starts talking, it completely just sidelines my train of thought. So if you could turn your cell phones, uh, the volume down, that would be much appreciated. Secondly, I want to encourage you along the lines of your elders, my fellow elders. Uh, As you know, we've been making our way through this really brief series on the one another's of Scripture. Last week, we looked at the one another, the exhortation that the writer of the Hebrews gives us to exhort one another daily. And of course, the presenting issue there in that text is the danger, the real danger, of falling away from the faith. Now, I said last week, I want to say again this week, that a genuine Christian will not fall away. However, a false convert may fall away. And the elders were helpful in encouraging me to perhaps preach on the opposite side of the coin here this morning, and that's exactly what I want to do in submission to our wonderful elders Uh, men who are godly and lead this church sacrificially and extremely well. I want to commend our elders to you in that way. Uh, But we are in John chapter 10, verses uh, 22 to 39, in a sermon that I'm entitling, Seeing is Believing, Question Mark. Seeing is Believing, Question Mark. It will come clear as we make our way through the passage. John 10, 22 to 39. We read, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God? 
If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works. that You may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. This is God's Word. Let's bow and pray together. Father, as we come with open Bibles before you, it's our prayer that you would give us humble hearts, that it would be fulfilled in us the, the words of Isaiah, that the one to whom you look is the one who is humble and contrite and who trembles at your word. Pray that you'd make us submissive, that you'd give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to accept all that you have to say to us today. In Jesus' precious name, amen. I have to confess to you that I have a bit of a guilty pleasure, and that guilty pleasure is true crime documentaries. I fancy a good true crime documentary from time to time. I think in another life I may have attempted to, I highlight, attempted to uh, be a lawyer. would have been fun, I think. My gift at arguing would have served me really well in that context. But I love watching true crime documentaries because I love watching drama play out in a courtroom. I love watching a prosecution present all of the evidence in order to convict a man or woman accused of a crime. On the other hand, I love watching the defense strike down every piece of evidence so as to achieve what we know in America is called a reasonable doubt. An explanation of all the facts that seems to cast doubt on what's been presented. Whenever I watch one of these documentaries, I try to put myself in the juror's seat. Try to examine what, what would I conclude if I were presented with all of the evidence. It's always hard when you watch one of those documentaries because you understand, don't you, that the people making the documentary are trying to lead you to their conclusion. Gospel of John isn't very different. As a matter of fact, John has a very clear purpose to present evidence to convict, if you will, Jesus of being the Christ, the Son of God. Not a criminal, but to present the evidence so that you and I would understand who Jesus is and believe in him. As a matter of fact, if you'll just turn with me to the end of John's gospel into chapter 20. It's the second to last chapter in the gospel. John chapter 20. I want you to see that John actually tells us, it's a beautiful thing, he tells us exactly what this gospel's about. Isn't that wonderful? If you study the gospel of John intensely on your own, you can know exactly why he has written this book. He tells us chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. And Mark Dever has observed, I think, with just deceptive simplicity, that there are three points to John's Gospel. Number one, John is writing about what we should believe. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Number two, he's writing about why we should believe. Because these signs, points, are the evidence that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. And thirdly, there are certain results that happen from believing. That is, we are given eternal life in His name. 
So all throughout this gospel, whether Jesus is changing water into wine, chapter 2, healing an official son, chapter 4, an invalid, chapter 5, feeding the 5,000, chapter 6, a man born blind in chapter 9, raising Lazarus from the dead, chapter 11, or even the ultimate sign, raising himself from the dead, chapter 20, these signs act as miniature sermons which proclaim that he is the Christ, the Son of God. There is clear and sufficient evidence in John's gospel to convict, if you will, Jesus of being the Christ. But here in John chapter 10, halfway through this book, we run into a really just massive problem. And that is that, of course, there are some who don't believe. Now, when a prosecutor is unable to secure a conviction, the question that he or she has to ask themselves is, was there something wrong with the evidence? Was there something wrong with the evidence? Was it insufficient? Was it unclear? Did I not present it well? And the question that you and I are forced to answer as we face unbelief in the Gospel of John is, is the evidence insufficient? Is John not the clear witness to Jesus that he presents himself at the end of the book? That's the note that sounds forth from this text in John chapter 10. Here we have all of the elements of John's purpose statement. The issue in the passage is the identity of Jesus as the Christ, verse 24, and the Son of God, verse 36. The evidence for Jesus being the Christ and the Son of God is the work that He is doing, verse 25 and 37 to 38. And yet, rather than believing in light of the signs that it may have life, we have opponents refusing to believe in Jesus. So what is happening? The main thrust of this passage is that the works of Jesus prove Him to be the Christ, the Son of God, and so you should believe. You should believe. There's sufficient evidence. So why do some disbelieve? I want to move through our passage under two headings, and both of them have to do with the identity of Jesus. Number one, Jesus is the Christ, verses 22 to 30. Now, I want to just point out that our entire passage is occasioned by the question, are you the Christ? Look at verse 22. At, the t- at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now incidentally and interestingly, the the text is located here in the temple at the time of the Feast of Dedication. This is the only New Testament reference that I know of to what we refer to as Hanukkah. It's Hanukkah. And Jesus is walking in Solomon's colonnade on the eastern part of the temple. And he is surrounded, verse 24, by a group of Jews. It all sounds very aggressive, doesn't it? It sounds challenging. It reads almost like so many movie scenes where an unsuspecting victim is circled by a group of thugs. And that's why it's so important to understand before we even make our way into the passage that John is not meaning to present all Jews in the negative light of unbelief or opposition. He uses the word almost like a technical term to refer to the opponents of Jesus. So here, the opponents of Jesus and the religious leadership, the Jews, gather around Jesus and they say, 
How long will you keep us in suspense? How long will you keep us going crazy? If you are the Christ, just tell us. Make it plain. Now, implicit in this question is the accusation that, of course, Jesus hasn't been plain. Is it not? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly, because of course to this point you haven't. You haven't been clear. There's insufficient evidence. I want you to see how Jesus responds to that kind of accusation. In verse 25, Jesus answers them and tells them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. So here it is in Jesus' reply to the opponents who say, you are not clear about who you are. He says, both in my words I have told you and in my works that I've done in my Father's name, you have been given sufficient and clear evidence that I am the Christ. It is not a problem of evidence. You see that in the text. It is not in the mind of Jesus a problem of evidence. He says plainly to the opponents who gather around him on this cold winter morning, the works that I do in my Father's name, hear the purpose of John, bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Why, if not for insufficient evidence, do these men remain in unbelief? Why? I think some of us would be forgiven for assuming that the translators here got the sentence order backwards. We'd be forgiven for thinking that what Jesus really meant to say was, you are not among my sheep because you do not believe. But that's not what Jesus says. It was plainly squarely at his opponents, and he says, you do not believe because. What lies behind your unbelief? What is the cause of your unbelief? You are not among my sheep. Implication, of course, being, if you were, in fact, among my sheep, you would believe. Let me paraphrase what Jesus is saying here. Loved ones, he is saying that we do not become Sheep by believing. We become believers. How? By being sheep. It's the plain words of Jesus. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now in what follows here, Jesus contrasts the response of those who are not his sheep with the response of those who are his sheep in verses 27 to 29. And what I want to do is to make my way through this response of Jesus on three lines. I've been given them by Bruce Milne, a commentator from the UK. But I want you to hear from the words of Jesus Himself. These are the words of Christ. That the most basic factor, the most fundamental factor regarding whether a man or a woman believes that Jesus is the Christ is whether he or she is among the sheep. You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. On the other side, if you were among my sheep, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me, I give them eternal life, they will never perish, no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father who's given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus says at least three things about this group of people he refers to as my sheep. And the first is that Jesus' sheep are a summoned group. They are summoned. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. Now, this is coming at the end of the Good Shepherd Discourse. Look back at verse 3. As Jesus is describing the relationship of a sheep to a shepherd, he says, To him the gatekeeper opens, that is the shepherd, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Now, you believe this, or else what is the explanation behind our singing, You called my name, and I came out of that grave? You're exactly right. They are a summoned group. This is the distinguishing mark of a sheep who belongs to the shepherd. And hearing the shepherd's voice, she responds and follows. Not only, mind you, in the initial call to faith and repentance, but also in daily calls to repentant, faithful obedience to Jesus. This is the assurance that I am a sheep of the great shepherd if I hear the voice of Jesus and follow him. The Bible's not interested in giving assurance of salvation to those who aren't following Jesus. If someone hears the voice of Jesus and follows, then it follows, no pun intended, that they are among Jesus' sheep. That's what he says. Secondly, Jesus' sheep are a gifted group. Now, when I say that, I mean to riff in the old jazz sense of the word riff on that idea of being gifted. Because look at what Jesus says. Look down with me at verse 29. First of all, Jesus' sheep are a gifted group in the sense that they are a gift of love from the Father to the Son. They are a gift of love from the Father to the Son. Look at 29. My Father, who has given them to me, So the sheep, this group of people that Jesus is describing, have been given as a gift of love from the Father to the Son. But notice also that this group is gifted in the sense that not only are they themselves a gift to the Son, but they receive a gift from the Son. Verse 28, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Having been given as a gift of love from the Father to the Son, the Son then gives to them the gift of eternal life. This is the Gospel story. Friends, both in the Gospel of John and all throughout Scripture, the Bible's testimony is clear that we are by birth and by nature sinners separated from God, upon whom the just wrath and condemnation of God rests. The gospel is not necessarily, I'm empty, fill me. The gospel is, I'm guilty, forgive me. I mean, just scroll back to John chapter 3 and hear how this is testified to in verses uh, 18 and 19. This comes right after the great whosoever passage. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Here we go, verse 18. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. 
But whoever does believe, does not believe, is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Apart from Jesus, we are condemned before a holy God because of our sin. But in Jesus, he tells us he gives his sheep the gift of eternal life. How? Verse 15. I lay down my life for the sheep. On that cross as Jesus died, we sang it together, the wrath of God is satisfied. There's a way, a means for you to have the just condemnation of God for your sin removed from you, and the only way that that can happen is if it's poured out on Jesus in your place. I give them eternal life as a free gift. The Bible reading, the morning I wrote the majority of this sermon, included Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Eternal death. Separation from God in hell. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. They're gifted. Thirdly, and this is why the elders and I agree that we should preach on this passage, Jesus' sheep are a secure group. They're secure. Having been given to the Son by the Father, having heard the voice of the shepherd and following Him, they can never finally be lost. Let me say that again. The genuine sheep of the Lord Jesus Christ, having been given as a gift from the, uh, by the Father to the Son, having heard the voice of the Son, the Good Shepherd, and following Him, can never finally be lost. Unequivocally, unapologetically, a genuine Christian cannot lose her salvation. All the warnings of Hebrews 3 notwithstanding. All of the warnings to continue pressing on notwithstanding. Don't you see the way in which the Father and the Son keep the believer secure in their hands is by the warnings. The warnings keep you on the path. They are a secure group gripped in the powerful grip of the Father and the Son. We love to go to Chuck E. Cheese as a family. One of the things that I love to do is to really just impress my son with this one particular machine. It's, it's made in the likeness of a gorilla. It has two silver handles that come up from the machine. And when you grip the handles, it begins to vibrate violently until either the timer runs out or you give up. And I set that thing on the lowest possible difficulty. And I grip that with all my might. And when I'm done, Henry says, no one's stronger than my dad. And I don't correct them. You see what Jesus is saying? Nobody is stronger than my dad. You think anything can cause him any vibrating pressure of life, any trial that you might encounter as a Christian, do you think anything can cause him to let go? That's really quite blasphemous, isn't it? To say that there is something stronger, greater than God the Father and God the Son that would cause him to let go and not fulfill his promise of eternal life. Eternal life, friends, by definition, lasts forever. Otherwise, it's temporary life. And the Bible makes no sense. No. There's nothing that can separate the genuine sheep of Jesus from his loving grip. 
Nor is this the first time in John's gospel that Jesus has spoken in this way. John chapter 6, 37 to 40. All that the Father gives me, there we have it, will come to me. They hear my voice. Whoever comes to me I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. That's a guarantee. But of course, we we come face to face with the problem that Jesus is saying all this to explain unbelief. Is He not? Look guys, it's not because of insufficient evidence, it's because you're not my sheep. If you were my sheep, you would be summoned, gifted, and secure. Deep mystery, glorious words. I'm going to apply this passage in two ways before we continue on. I trust they come right from the text. In our evangelistic efforts, we need to be completely freed from thinking that people are not converted because we are not convincing. That is so important that I'm going to repeat it. In our evangelistic efforts, we need to be freed individually and corporately from thinking that people are not converted because we're not convincing. I mean, think this out. If Jesus turned water into wine, if he healed a man born blind, if he raised Lazarus from the dead, if he raised himself from the dead and people could look at those signs and walk away in unbelief, what possibly could you and I do that would be more impressive than that? More convincing than that? Nothing. So what will we do, loved ones? What will we do in relationship to an unbelieving world, we will be faithful to lift up the voice of the Good Shepherd and watch His sheep come running. That's what we will do. We'll lift up His voice. We'll trust His Word. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Be free. It's not your responsibility to convert anybody, nor can you. Number two, as you contemplate your own salvation, be humble and thankful that God would be this gracious to you. I mean, the right question, I'm gonna, the right question to be asking right now, this text, as you hear the sermon, is why me? Why me? Am I any better than these Jewish opponents? No, you're not. Why, not only why do unbelievers not believe, but why do believers believe? Why do you believe? If you are a believer in Jesus, a follower of Jesus here this morning, why do you believe? Is it because you're smarter than the people around you? No. Because you're more religiously sensitive than the people around you? No. It's because you're more rational and sensible when presented with facts? No. Is it not that you were his sheep? You are his sheep, and in hearing his voice, you heard and joyfully followed, willfully followed? Yes. We are no better than anyone. This gives us a posture of humility and grace to relate to those who don't believe. And don't you know that as we make our way into the second part of the passage, that's exactly what Jesus himself does. The issue of the first half of our passage is, is Jesus the Christ? Here, the issue becomes, is Jesus the Son of God? Here's point number two. Jesus is the Son of God, verses 31 to 39. Now, you can imagine, it makes complete sense that having heard all that Jesus has just said, that these Jews become incensed. But what's fascinating is they don't become angry for anything that you and I might think they might be angry about. You would imagine that they get angry because of something that he has said about them. 
But notice that their anger revolves entirely about what he said about himself. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Verse 32, Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. From which of the, for which of them are you going to stone me? That must be, if that is not the most amazing sentence ever uttered in the face of someone who wants to kill you, I don't know what is. I've shown you many good works. For which of them do you stone me? And the Jews answered, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. They hear Jesus say, I and the Father are one. They understand fully what he means. They're one in purpose and work to keep the believer secure, but they reason back from that and say, well, if he can do what the Father does, he must be saying he's God. Not a second God, but the Christian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. They want to stone him. Their accusation is, you being a man, make yourself God. I love what Johnny says, the irony here is real. Friends, let me, let me say, don't ever be persuaded by silly arguments that no one in the first century believed that Jesus was God, that Jesus didn't himself claim to be God. Look at the way that people responded to what Jesus said, and you'll understand very clearly what Jesus said of himself. They want to stone him because, according to them, you being a mere man make yourself God. But we know, don't we, that the Christian doctrine is not that Jesus the man became God. John chapter 1 is clear that the Word who was God became man. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. But here is what is so crucial for this text. Here is what we must understand as we wrestle with these very weighty issues. Is that all the things that Jesus has just said, not saying, you do not believe because you are not of my, among my sheep, does not prevent him, notice, from continuing to press in on them to believe. It doesn't prevent him from looking at them and reasoning to them from the Scriptures and from his works so that they might believe. If you have a problem with me calling myself the Son of God, you had no problem with Psalm 82.6, which refers either to angels or the rulers of Israel as little g-gods. So if you didn't have any problem there, why would you have a problem with God the Son coming, being consecrated and sent into the world, and referring to Himself as the Son of God? But here's, here's where the rubber really meets the road. Is as he explains these things to his opponents, he looks at them in verse 37, and he issues a gracious challenge. Look at this with me, verse 37. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Believe the works. That's a commandment. In my office, I have a clock. It's an old clock. One of my friends got it for me to decorate my office. I'm not very good at interior design. It might surprise you. A friend of mine got me this clock, and I love to listen to it tick, the secondhand tick, as I study. This past week, I was reminded of a Charles Simeon illustration about the clock and about exactly what Jesus is saying here in this passage. 
If I were to open up the clock in front of you here this morning, you would notice there are gears in the clock that turn in opposite directions. As a matter of fact, in order for one gear to turn clockwise, it has to be driven or moved by a gear that's turning counterclockwise, does it not? Give you a moment to visualize that. Yeah, that's how it works. I almost wonder if you don't come to this passage and see the gears turning. On the one hand, there is a gear that's represented by verses 22 uh, through to uh, 30. And that gear is represented by the words, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. But there's a second gear that's being turned by it in verses 31 to 39, which commands these men to believe the works. And just as those gears that move in opposite directions work together to set forward the hands of time, so too does God's sovereignty and salvation work together with human responsibility to set forward the purposes of God in actual time. Jesus' understanding of His sovereign salvation does not prevent Him from being a passionate evangelist, nor does it excuse them in their unbelief. My non-Christian friends, I know that there's at least one of you here. And I want to just say thank you because you have sat through some very deep theology. I see anybody asleep, thrilled by that. Friend, if you are here as a non-Christian this morning, I have one question for you. And that is, on what basis do you refuse to believe? Look with me. Look with me at what Jesus does. Verse 37. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Do you see that challenge? That's a challenge. Look at what I'm doing and tell me. Tell yourself whether you see the Father at work in me. My Christian friend, on what basis will you refuse to believe? Have you ever read the Gospel of John? Have you ever evaluated the evidence for yourself? I mean, it seems to me that the burden of proof is, is sort of on you. If you are an unbeliever here this morning and you have not examined the evidence that the Bible tells us presents Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God, do you really want to walk through the doorway of eternity without having considered it? Don't you want to be sure of your unbelief? Listen, I will tell you, if you are here this morning and you have not yet trusted in Jesus, I would be thrilled if you would take any Bible in this place. Take the Bible in the pew in front of you. Take a Bible from the Welcome Center on your way out. I will give you my Bible. If you will commit to saying, I will read the Gospel of John this week and I will take Jesus' challenge. I will examine the works and I will determine for myself. I'll ask God to show me. Show me your son. I'll take that offer. It will take you 90 minutes. One and one half hours to read this entire book. If I were to tell you that a 90 minute investment of your time would either earn you a billion dollars or nothing, would you take that bet? Of course you would take that bet. So hear me saying, 
90-minute investment of your time may cause you to walk away a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, summoned by His voice, gifted eternal life, no longer condemned in sin and sentenced to hell, but rather earned a place in heaven by the Son Himself, you may be given eternal life or nothing. You may be assured of your salvation, you may be assured of your unbelief, but why not take that challenge? Let me up the stakes a bit. My non-Christian friend, if you are here and this is you, and you are willing to read the gospel, not only can you take any Bible in this building, not only can you take my Bible, I will personally sit with you and read the gospel of John. And if there are more people than I can handle, I will make other staff do it with me. Right? Have you taken this challenge? If, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. Walk away. But if I do them, even though you do not believe, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me. And I am in the Father. 90 minutes. Why do people remain in unbelief? Why? It's certainly not because of lack of evidence. Away with notions that somehow, some way, on that last day, as we stand before God in judgment, to give an account for what we have done with His Son, that any of us will be able to say, well, you know, you just didn't make it plain. If that's your plan, that's a bad plan. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing may have life in His name. Why do people remain in unbelief? Why, why do those of us who believe, believe? We magnify the grace of our good shepherd and the sovereign salvation that he gives even as we plead with those who have yet to believe. Come. Come. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Don't in the first instance say, am I a sheep? In the first instance, you just come running to Jesus. And once you've done that, come see me and I'll say, well, you know, it's because you're a sheep. Sheep hear the shepherd's voice and they follow. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are so gracious and kind as to give us clear and sufficient evidence to convict your Son of being the Christ and the Son of God. The miracles that he performs, the gracious words that he speaks, leave us without excuse. This was our prayer this morning that each and every one would look to the Son and have eternal life. Those of us who have looked to the Son and have been given eternal life, that you'd help us to rest assured that He will hold me fast. Thank you for the gracious warnings all throughout your word that keep us held fast in your powerful grip. 
pray, Lord, that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ would be magnified in and among us. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.